from Kurtco Media. It's easy for me to let the American Presidential Experience Collection go. It's not the money. I don't need the money, but I can use that money for more scholarships and for doing more back in the little community that I grew up in. And it's time for somebody else to own these stars. I've had the privilege of owning them and the pride of owning them. I'll let somebody else have that feeling too. This is Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross. Welcome to Cars That Matter. Today in our program, we're joined over Zoom by Jim Warlick. Hi, Jim. How's North Carolina? It's probably a little cooler here than out there, but thank you for having me on the show. It's my pleasure to be on. Today, we're going to talk about some cars that matter for a very different reason. Sure, the cars themselves are special, but the cars we're going to talk about today matter because of the people who rode in them. Jim is the owner of two automobiles that were used by the late President John F. Kennedy, one on the very morning of his assassination, and it's not the car you'd think. But they're really a part of a bigger story and a part of a bigger picture. Jim Warlick is owner of the White House Gift Shop in Washington, D.C., and also founder and owner of PresidentialExperience.com, which is essentially a traveling exhibition that appears at presidential conventions, maybe not this year, but historically you've had an awful lot to do with all things presidential. Tell us about the mission of the American Presidential Experience. Robert, after 9-11, For two or three years, most of the schools in the country quit coming to Washington. And I saw where there was a chance to take the presidential memorabilia at that time and the stuff that I was assembling out to the Ozarks in southern Missouri. I went out, I looked for a place, and there was an old Quonset hut out there. So I worked a deal to buy the building, and I'd already assembled the airplane, some first ladies' gowns and other things, but I didn't have the cars at that time. But I was given on loan the Reagan limousine, the first one that he looked at to approve the other ones that came after. A museum in Michigan loaned that to me. And so I had a 10,000-square-foot building, took me about a year to renovate it. It actually was Elvis Presley's cousin's old theater called back to the 50s. So I wanted to go out there because I knew those kids. I grew up here in Appalachian and it's very poor in these mountains. Those kids in those mountains were much like the kids when I grew up. I say that we were so poor when I was a kid, when we got a rainbow, it was black and white. (laughs) So I went out there and we opened the museum. I purchased at the Philadelphia Presidential Fest for the 2000 Republican Convention. I helped them and they brought in an airplane that had fuselage that had been used for some movie sets. And it was set up like Richard Nixon. I bought that. I had some first ladies gowns made and we opened and we were the number one educational facility for homeschooling in the area for several years. During that period, a lot of people kept asking us, could you bring this to the state fair? Could you bring it to an area near us and travel with it? We got to the point that it looked like it was going to be more lucrative to do that than keep the museum going. And they built a big Titanic exhibit next to me and that (laughs) sucked all the water out of all the other museums and everyone wanted to see the Titanic. Well, it's sounds like your endeavor was a whole lot more oriented toward education. Obviously, a nonpartisan endeavor. It doesn't matter which party line someone was walking. This was about the presidency. I knew those kids, Robert, would never, if they didn't get to Washington during high school, they probably would never come to Washington. 
I think everybody in America should at some point in their life come to the capital city and they would appreciate the government a little better, I think. But this was a great chance and to be with those kids and we would have games where they would find things like Lincoln's hat and other things and they would get gifts if they got it all right. But we decided to take it on the road. It was called the Presidential Museum out there. We changed the name to the American Presidential Experience and it was nonpartisan. I bought another airplane and fixed it up the way that it was when Ronald Reagan was president. So that's Reagan's Air Force One? Reagan's 707 Air Force One. Wow. We ended up having two airplanes, and then we switched the Nixon airplane to the Kennedy airplane. We got both sides, so to speak. We had a Bill Clinton Oval Office at a time, and then another one, a Ronald Reagan Oval Office. But we actually now have six Oval Offices. We have one in California, and we have two in Washington, and three or four down in Atlanta, Georgia. Well, that's fascinating. Let's put a hold on the cars for a second. I want to know more about these offices. How do you actually replicate these? I tell you where I got the idea, Robert. My store is across from the White House. And when people tour the White House, when they come over to our store right after they come out, we ask them how they like their tour. People are actually disappointed sometimes because they think they're going to go in the Oval Office or see the Oval Office. And they really only get to see three or four rooms and they've waited in line and they've waited four months to get a ticket. And so I always said, if you could go see an Oval Office, a tour one, would you? And they said, oh yeah. And so I had this studio in California build one for me and I brought it in for Bush's inauguration in the old train station in Washington under the rotunda. And I had a George Bush lookalike who sat behind it and talked to people and signed autographs and stuff like that. People loved it. Just around the corner from the store, we have a political presidential gallery and we have an Oval Office set up there and people come in and have the picture made sitting behind the desk. And we also have a press podium with the backdrop and so they can have their picture made there also. They got to see what the White House was like, the Oval Office. They got to see a limousine, a presidential limousine, and they got to see a presidential airplane. Those are the three main things when you think about the presidency is how do they travel, where do they work, how they travel in the air and cars. So it really wrapped it all up for people when they toured. That is fascinating. You're absolutely right. I mean, a trip to Washington and seeing all the monuments, the museums, and just understanding how rich and complicated the history is, it's something that can't be equaled. But hey, if the mountain can't come to Mohammed, sometimes the kids have to go to the mountain. And obviously, that's what you're doing. You talk about presidential vehicles, and those probably attract more attention among the public and certainly even car enthusiasts as any other kind of vehicle you can imagine. They're special. They're imbued with special ambience. And of course, none probably incorporates greater piece of history than the cars that JFK rode in. And the one that was, of course, the last car that he rode in, which is now in the Henry Ford. You happen to own two of those cars and they're coming up for sale at a Bonhams auction this October 14, an auction called the American Presidential Experience. Tell us about the auction and then let's talk about those cars. About three years ago, I had this project that I wanted to do. It's called the Workers' Legacy Foundation project. We had just done the Oklahoma State Fair two years in a row with the exhibition. We've been in Philadelphia for the Democratic Convention in 16. And I'm getting older and it's a lot to put up the Oval Office and set up a 15,000 square foot show. I decided I could use that money for that project to do scholarships for kids. And as much as I love the Kennedy items and the cars and very proud to own them, it's time for somebody else to own them. And then I can put the use of that money to that project that I really love love and I need to get done. And we'll talk about that later on in the program. That's a very compelling and very worthwhile endeavor. 
Can you tell us a little bit about the auction, what the process is going to be like given the current pandemic scenario? This is going to be a live auction, but it'll happen online. Is that right? Yes. On October the 14th at one o'clock, Robert, this auction has been postponed twice. We were supposed to have this back in January and it was going to be in New York and the cars were going to be exhibited in the atrium at Trump Tower in New York. And search would have been appropriate. And we're going to put an oval office up and have the exhibit there and have the auction broadcast live and online and the people could come and review everything. And so then we postponed it again until July and then COVID did not get any better. So we decided let's put it off to October and we just made a decision recently that we got to do it only online. In fact, we have the two cars. The Kennedy car is sitting in New Jersey, the convertible. The other one is up in Rhode Island at a storage, antique storage place. So we've got to bring the cars back together now. They tell me that online auctions are doing better than even sometimes the live auctions. What got you started on this mission, Jim? I remember going to Mount Vernon. My aunt and uncle took me up there. I was 12 years old. Just being in Mount Vernon, I used to say, George Washington walked around here where I'm walking. My goal then is I had to get back to Washington one day. That was my dream, my goal, and I finally did. But how I got into Kennedy was 1960 in the third grade. They brought a TV in to the auditorium and we got to watch the inauguration. I was fascinated by the pomp and circumstance and with John Kennedy. And then like many of us in 1963, we were in the classroom on that Friday afternoon and it just changes your life. I made a trip then in the eighth grade, 1965, to Washington, and I wanted to go see Kennedy's grave. And I bought a little souvenir, a little John Kennedy bust, and I still have that bust today. I think I paid 50 cents for it. Then that turned me on. I wanted to go to Washington and work. And so even as a young boy, I got involved in politics and leafleting cars and stuff. I started collecting political buttons. And then I went to Washington and I wanted to design some buttons to pay for a trip to the convention in New York for Carter and the convention in Detroit for Ronald Reagan. And I worked for a congressman, so I took some vacation time. I drive all night to Detroit. I sell my buttons on the street and I made more money in a week than I did in a year with my congressman. So I came back and I said, I'm going to have to quit. He was in a hot campaign race then. Talk about capitalism. And so I quit and I threw buttons in the car. I did Reagan buttons and then Carter buttons, went to New York and sold in New York. And I traveled around the country. I did a rally every day by myself. I had a great time, got to see the country. And then every four years I would do this. And then I got to where I would get college kids from Labor Day until the election. They would travel and sell buttons. I would position some in California, some out of Atlanta, Columbus, Ohio, and they wrote about it and they got college credit for it and their experience and how the speeches changed in the crowd. So they really got a lot out of it and they sold a lot of buttons for me too. So it got started really from selling buttons. And then I decided to open up a memorabilia store in the old train station in Washington in 1989. Bill Clinton used to come through on his way to fundraisers and he would buy every Truman button I had. He was a big Truman collector. The store is called Political Americana. It was the first political memorabilia store in the country. And it became a big hit. So I opened one in Chicago. I opened one in Boston at Faneuil Hall, Quincy Market. I opened one in Baltimore, and I had three in Washington. So at one time, I had six political memorabilia stores. And that is hard to keep up because when you have six stores, you got three that do great and three that don't. And yeah, I was constantly traveling. So I decided to, to not do that. The stores in other cities anymore. Then I opened the White House gift store across from the White House. 
And at first was the Obama inauguration store. Then we eventually turned it in in a few months after he became president in the White House gift store. From that, then we started looking about buying other items that we could take on the road with the experience. So I go to this auction in Boston in 2013 in October, and they had two cars. They had one, which was a 1960 Lincoln, an armored car made specifically as the presidential car. They had several in the motor pool. This car never traveled. It had a hard top and had a two-way radio in it, phone-like in the back, the first one. It only carried Kennedy around Washington. I won that bid and wasn't going to bid on the other, but the price looked pretty good. And I ended up bidding on that one and getting it also. So, and at the end of the day, I thought, well, where am I going to get the money to pay for these two cars? I just went crazy. You know, you do that. Well, an auction will do that to you. And I'll bet you're glad you did now. I am. I worked it out. Now I got the cars and got uh, more items that will be in the auction on October 14th. That's great. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurt Co. Media, media for your mind. We're back with Jim Warlick. Jim, let me ask you. First of all, JFK is probably the most beloved president in what would be modern U.S. history. I'm a postage stamp collector, and you look at stamps issued by nations around the world, and Europe, Africa, Asia, South America, he's on stamps from almost every stamp printing nation in the world. He was really a heroic figure, and of course, his assassination was a shock to the world. Most people, when they think about Kennedy's automobiles, they only think about the so-called death car, the car that he was shot in in Dallas. That car, I guess, went to the Smithsonian Institution after Johnson had it all cleaned up. And now it's in the Henry Ford in Dearborn. But that car really bears no relation to the car that Jackie and Kennedy and the governor were riding in the day he was shot. It's a different color. It's got a different top on it. I mean, it's completely redone. You know, they actually used that car through Jimmy Carter. That's amazing. I'm kind of surprised any president would want to even ride in it. I mean, it was almost a sacred artifact. And just to use it as a livery vehicle, not to mention whatever black cloud was sort of hanging over it. It's strange they continue to be used. And I guess just to put that in context, all our listeners would recognize it as the exquisite Lincoln Continental design from early 1960s that has endured so well in an aesthetic sense. That was really an important American car. Harry Truman switched the presidential cars to be made by Lincoln. He got mad at General Motors because they wouldn't loan him any cars during the campaign. <laughs> and an interesting fact, Teddy Roosevelt would not ride in a car. He rode in carriages. And they had a car who would follow him with security behind the horse-drawn carriage. Is that right? He thought it was not manly. A man and a horse is what you got to ride on, a president does. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, uh, unfortunately, President Kennedy got in that Lincoln and never got out alive. But what most people don't realize is that there were some other cars that were associated with his tenure, and one very closely associated that he had, in fact, ridden in that very day. That's the car you have for sale. It's a 1963 Lincoln Continental. It's a beautiful ivory car with a red 
red interior, and that's kind of the star of the auction. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, it's unusual for one other time I've seen a president ride in a car that was not a presidential limousine, and that was Jimmy Carter when he announced in 1980. But they had two or three parades they needed to do, and they did not plan for a parade in Fort Worth. He was going to get into Fort Worth late on Thursday night, November 21st. So the car was to pick him up at the airport at Carswell, take him to the hotel, and then back to the airport quickly the next morning. And so the Secret Service asked the Golightly Auto business if they had a car. They were the Lincoln dealer in town, right? Yes. They said yes. And so they drilled in the fender mounts to put the flags on the car, the presidential flag and the American flag. And so it picked Jackie and the president up at the airport, I think about 11.10 that night. They got into the room about 11.40 and they were exhausted. They got up the next morning and one of the other things that will be in the auction, Kennedy called the lady that had decorated the hotel room with great pieces of art. He called to thank her. Boy, what a touch of class. Ruth Carter Johnson was her name. It was the last time he would ever pick up a telephone. It was his last phone call also. Those two phones that were in the hotel room will be in the auction. So Kennedy comes down. It's raining that morning. He's going to speak out in front of the hotel. Jim Wright introduces him. Kennedy's the only one without a hat on. He speaks And then he goes back in, changes, because he's going to speak to the chamber there that morning in Fort Worth. There's great video. The car was brought up to the entrance. So when he came out, it would be right there. And it had the top up. And while he was speaking, the sun came out. Secret Service said, let's take the top down. And this is a normal Lincoln. It's not a big presidential car. And they take the top down. And then Kennedy, Jackie, and Governor Connolly come out. And all three of them get in the back seat with Jackie in the middle. And so they're all squeezed in. You see this picture. That is a great picture. I had a chance to see it. You talk about Camelot. I mean, it really was their white horse, wasn't it? It was a white Lincoln, and it looked pretty special. And there were great crowds along the way to the airport in Carswell. And then when you look back and see the film when they get out of this white convertible and then they go to the fence. This is the first time Jackie had traveled with the president on the campaign. She had lost a child earlier in the spring and so she hadn't traveled and this was the first time. Somebody said they looked so happy together because they both went to the fence to greet people and then you think, wow, that's the last time he'll ever get out of an automobile. And so sometimes when I describe the car to people, it's hard to say it's the last car he rode in because it's not. That's the assassination car. It's the car he rode in successfully and got out of. And 12 minutes later, they're in Dallas. And within an hour of getting out of that car, he had been assassinated. One of the things we did at the state fairs is we would ask people, can you remember, and we recorded them, where you were on November 22nd, 1963. And everybody, it came back as though it had happened 10 minutes ago. And everybody wanted to tell their story. So we set up a little table and we would do interviews with people just telling about that day and what they thought about Kennedy and the whole assassination. I think back too, I remember walking home from school, coming home from elementary school and walked through the door and my mom must have been in tears. She was a fairly elderly elegant lady and probably could have doubled for Jackie. Certainly represents a moment in time and also a moment in time when uh, American cars were pretty presidential in their demeanor. And I can't imagine a more appropriate one to put up on the auction block. That's a great piece of history and a great car. You've got another one as well, the one you alluded to earlier, the big armored monster. That's a Lincoln Continental limousine from 1960. So it had a completely different look. They made them big then. (laughs) That one is 22 feet long. It's an armored car, one of the first ones, windshields, all the glass. It is a heavy-duty car. 
they must have paid some money to have that thing built. If the government pays 900 bucks for a hammer, I'd shudder <laughs> to think what that thing cost back in 1960. You know, the cars now cost almost $3 million. So it was a better deal than the ones they get now. Though. I was talking with a fabricator recently who actually has done some work on presidential vehicles or part of his team have. And he says they may look like Cadillacs or whatever, but there's nothing having to do with a Cadillac underneath that skin because they're essentially armored tanks. It was said that in one of the Reagan's limousines, that they had an opening in the back. The seat would fold down and it was a private security. They would go in that in the back of the car. I don't know if that's true or not, but after Clinton's limousine, they used to put them in presidential libraries, but they don't do that anymore. They actually use them for the Secret Service to train them and they shoot the cars up and destroy them. They got all kinds of intelligence equipment and they probably can fly. We don't know, but they probably can. These two cars, Robert, had been in storage for more than 10 years. Nobody had seen them. And so something like that, I wanted people to see it. That's why it worked perfectly for me with the presidential experience, the traveling show. I guess there's other pieces of important JFK memorabilia that are coming up on the block, too. You'd mentioned these two telephones, which I've seen a picture of. It's kind of amazing. Got a little White House emblem in the center, and they're very special. Back when rotary phones are all we had. I bought this from a man who was a telephone guy who installed the phones. After, he just took them and thought, well, I'll just take them home with me. I guess I hopefully he paid the telephone company, but he had them for years and years before he really thought how valuable they were since it's the last phone call. Oh, be darned. We have a Kennedy shaving kit also. It's in a nice case with his initials on it. It's got the razor and the brush and the blades and everything in it. We have one of Jackie's bathing suits that will be in the auction also. It's framed beautifully. I wonder if it's still in style. She made that famous trip to Paris. The world loved her. The French loved her and she got accolades for that trip. She had a pair of beautiful shoes she wore on that trip and they're seen in a lot of the press pieces. So those shoes are going to be for sale also. Well, you really cover the gamut in terms of the president's personal life. That's pretty amazing. Obviously, JFK is a key figure, but as I alluded to before, your mission really is kind of decidedly nonpartisan. I mean, you have great interest in all of this presidential history and history of Washington. When I try to inspire in kids when they come to the show is the way I felt in 1965. And there are a lot of great kids out there who get it and who know their history and they love it. And you can quiz kids and they know more than I know. There was a little boy that we brought in from Atlanta. He's six years old and he does John Kennedy's inaugural speech and uses the voice. He's a fine young African-American kid, but he uses a Boston accent at six years old. (laughs) That's not what your country can do for you. (laughs) Oh, that is fantastic. It's so gratifying to think that this is still an inspiration for young people. I think that's just fantastic. Well, we're going to take a quick break, but we will be right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from... She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find one. The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtco.com slash a moment of your time. Welcome back to Cars That Matter. 
I shudder to ask how many other things are in your collections. You talked about campaign buttons before. Would you venture a guess at what that collection entails? After I started making buttons, I started designing campaign material for campaigns. So I ended up doing 14 presidential candidates, their buttons and bumper stickers and buttons. And that was my business for 10 years before I opened the memorabilia store in Washington. John Glenn, Gary Hart, Jesse Jackson, Fritz Hall in South Carolina. So it doesn't matter which side of the aisle they're on, you're going to give them some good quality work. In the old days, at the end of the campaign, they'd still owe you money and they run out of money. And so what I would do is say, give me back what you didn't distribute around the country and I'll give you credit on it. So I got some back that way. But I think Gary Hart still owes me 12000 John Glenn owes me ten, but not their fault. They can't under the federal law. They said they'd love to pay me personally, but they can't. That's a little detail I wouldn't know. I had to go into politics, save some money. I did the inauguration for Clinton in 92. I did all the inauguration items and set up six or eight scores and did the posters. And it was a big, big project. We hired 300 people to work these booths around the city during the inauguration. With all the posters and buttons that I have from all these candidates and the ones I've collected, I have around 1.2 million political campaign buttons. Good heavens. What kind of warehouse does that take to house them? It takes about 8,000 square foot, 800 crates, and many of them in bags never been opened before, still in the original plastic bags they came in. I set up a foundation to give those away, and I've been trying to give them away to schools and places for the last five years, even to the presidential libraries. What's amazing is those are important historical markers, if you will. That's kind of like discovering King Tut's tomb 2,000 years later. Imagine what archaeologists will think when they discover all those buttons if you haven't been able to distribute them. I was in the warehouse the other day and I found some Biden buttons. I did Biden's campaign in 1988. And so I still have my Joe Biden campaign buttons that I made for that campaign. So if he wins, these value will go up. That is fantastic. We certainly keep politics out of our program, but I can't imagine a better way to broach the subject than getting a presidential expert in on our show. Jim, whenever you're buying a car from a private party or maybe looking at a car at auction or whatnot, the first question people seem to have is maybe with a little bit of suspicion, well, why are you selling this car? What's the matter with it? What makes you want to get rid of such a nice car or whatever the line would be? That's an obvious question to you, but you alluded to a program and a purpose that was really has some real meaning to you personally and to a lot of the people in the South. Tell us about your foundation. Robert, I've been very fortunate because I grew up very, very poor and every day has been extra. I've been so, so fortunate. When I collected all these things and I was putting on an exhibition at the local museum back in the little town that I grew up in. And what town's that, Jim? Morganton, North Carolina. A Senator Sam Irvin was from Morganton. And when I was a kid, I handed out Sam Irvin buttons and stickers and got in trouble putting stickers in people's mailboxes. People said, that's a federal property. You can't do that. <laughs> when I was in the museum, we saw a lot of pictures and things about the owners of the mills. Well, my people were mill workers. My mother went to work in a hosiery mill at the age of 16, worked at the same sewing machine for 33 years. That's unheard of. Nobody stays at a job for 33 years. And of course, today, people don't start working with her 16. But by the way, she was old to start working at 16 because some of those kids looked like they were half that age. You are absolutely right, Robert. Child labor was a big issue up until the late 40s, until after World War II. Kids six and eight years old were worked in mills, even around the town that I grew up in. It was shameful. And so mom got up every morning at 5.30. She got us dressed. She fed breakfast and then we would catch the bus. She would catch a ride to work with other mill workers. She raised three kids and did honorable work. I don't think I ever remember her missing a day's work. She made $80 a week and raised three kids on that. 
Over the years, I've always wanted to pay tribute to my mother. She passed away seven years ago. I had this idea about doing an exhibition on mill workers, and then it got bigger. And so I set up a foundation and put some money in it. And we have scholarships now for first-generation kids, first time anybody in their family has gone to a college at the local community college in Morganton, where I went to school. It's full scholarships for 10 kids each year. And we just had our first kids get scholarships this year. We're doing a documentary on mill workers that we're going to show in the schools because kids don't get an appreciation. People who are mill workers have an inferiority. They think that they're just mill workers. The first woman I interviewed, one of the things we do is a story core type thing. And so I brought in this elderly lady. She's 94 years old, Miss Evelyn Newton. We got ready to do the interview and she said, Mr. Warwick, she said, I don't have a story. I'm just a mill worker. And I said, you give me a little time, then I'll find a story in you. Well, she talked for two hours. And then she called back a week later and said, tell Mr. Warlick that I'll come back up there and talk some more if he wants me to. When she left there, she was so proud. No one had ever made her feel that her work in a mill was great work. And she raised a family. They got educations. And a lot of them, there are school teachers in the area now. So the mill workers built a good community. My idea was we need to honor these people and we better do it fast because they're passing on. So this foundation does the scholarships, the documentary. We've got a monument that will be going up on the History Museum grounds. We were going to do it in October, but with COVID, we've got to wait till next year to the elderly workers can get there. But in the center of that monument will be my mother, 12 feet high, and then my uncle who worked in the furniture factory. I had 32 aunts and uncles. We didn't have time to think about being poor because everybody was hugging you and kissing you and loving you. So that's what got me through. I had a wonderful family and they were all mill workers. The women worked in the textiles and hosiery. The men worked in the furniture factories. And then we have this wonderful, still living African-American woman who represents the textile worker. This monument will tell the story of the mills and the lives of the mill workers, and it will honor and pay tribute to them. What an incredibly magnanimous and worthwhile endeavor. It's called the Workers' Legacy Foundation. It is, and that's the reason it's easy for me to let the American Presidential Experience Collection go. It's not the money. I don't need the money, but I can use that money for more scholarships and for doing more back in the little community that I grew up in. And it's time for somebody else to own these cars. I've had the privilege of owning them and the pride of owning them. I'll let somebody else have that feeling too. I think that's the way every car owner should look at their automobiles or whatever historical artifact they have. We're just the custodians of these things, but certainly your Workers Legacy Foundation has a broader mission and one that will certainly endure. The South is interesting. I think people who don't come from the South or have had little experience there, whether it's Mississippi or Alabama, Georgia, Florida, or a place as far north as North Carolina, don't really understand that there was so much industry and so much commerce done there that so greatly affected not just that region, but the entire economic prosperity in America. Virtually everything that was fabric or woven, carpet, all the, as you say, the furniture, all the woodworking, that was all done there. And under certainly less than ideal conditions, you imagine a six-year-old kid going to work. I have to wonder if that didn't somehow really create a strong, strong generation. It's interesting you touch on that because when I started this project, Robert, I was going to put a lot of emphasis and expose the child labor. And my exhibition was going to be about child labor. When I started interviewing these workers, I realized they enjoyed their work and they raised families on what little income they did get. I decided it was not my place to make them feel, I thought they would feel that they had been exploited working in the mills 
and they had a happy story. And I thought, I'm going to tell their story. We do have some in the exhibition we're going to do about child labor. It's not going to be the focus which I originally intended because I want them to be proud and to, when they tell their story, have some pride, and they should. Well, Jim, we're sure excited to see what happens at the upcoming Bonhams auction. And of course, this program will continue to be aired long after that. The conversation of the subject is going to be just as evergreen because presidential cars and the presidential experience and all that will continue to be alive online. Yes. Yeah, sure will. Jim, I really do wish you best of luck on this sale because it'll mean just that many more scholarships and what a great thing you're doing. I want to thank Jim Warlick, owner of White House Gift Shop and the Presidential Experience for joining us today and really taking a fascinating drive down Pennsylvania Avenue, so to speak, and talking about the presidency and some of the cars that played such an instrumental role in the history of that office. Jim, thanks so much. Well, thank you. And you're so kind to have me on the show to talk about the cars and the Kennedy Collection and the whole history and the Workers' Legacy Project. Thank you very much. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, sound engineering by Michael Kennedy, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.